Father, we thank you that we can come and do what we have done this morning. We can come and gather under your word as your people and sing, and sing your praises. Father, I thank you for the many testimonies of your grace that are all over this room, for the ways that you have kept people um, by your grace, sustained them, and deepened their joy in the gospel over years. Father, I pray that this morning, as we approach your word, that you would give us fresh hunger. Lord, we're approaching a passage that for many may be familiar, but I pray that you would give us a hunger to better understand your word, to know our God better, to understand the saving works of Jesus better, and to understand the implications for our lives. So, Lord, please help me to serve these friends, these brothers and sisters. Let your word dwell richly in their hearts and lives, we pray. And we thank you, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please uh, turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if, uh, if having and reading a Bible is a newer thing for you, it's, it's to the far right, uh, towards the end of the New Testament, the, the letter is entitled Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin at verse 19. I'm going to be reading through verse 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Nearly 10 years ago, a dear friend of this church and a a personal mentor to me, uh, John Loftness, introduced me, a young pastor, to the writings of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Schaeffer is one of John's favorite authors. And uh, during a particular summer, John kindly took myself and a few other younger pastors, uh, through several of Schaefer's writings. And John was our mentor. He walked us through. He answered uh, a lot of questions we had as we got to know this man, got to know his writings. Uh, we read through uh, Treasures, uh, that books like The God Who Is There, True Spirituality, Truth with Love. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of Schaefer's works, but they're, they're worth diving into, venturing into, and, and getting to know this man and what a gift he has been to the body of Christ in the last 50 years. Now, amongst many things that I appreciated, I, I, I learned that one of Schaefer's driving questions uh, was, uh, became the title of one of his books. And that question is, how then should we live? How then should we live? He wrote that book some 39 years ago, um, but since he wrote that book, it's still the driving question. For many, it still should be the driving question for Christians. It's that question is like a clean breeze that, that blows through and blows out confusion that exists in our day. Uh, One pastor and commentator, Richard Phillips wrote about Schaefer's book. His purpose was to show how ideas as they have been embraced or discarded have shaped the rise and the decline of Western culture. In his opening chapter, Schaefer writes, what people are in their thought world determines how they act. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers and from their tongues in the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel, and it is true of a dictator's sword. Phillips goes on to insightfully connect Schaefer's insight to how the New Testament has been written for us. Phillips writes, this is exactly how the New Testament presents matters. The reason so much of the Bible is devoted to doctrine, statements regarding what we must know and believe, is that the consequence of these truths 
are utterly definitive. We are living in a time that says it matters not so much what we believe as how we believe it. That is, with sincerity and tolerance for other views that are diametrically opposed. So, Grace Church, how then should you live? How should I live? Schaefer said, what people are in their thought world determines how they act. In other words, how we live flows out of our understanding of God's character, God's ways, um, whether it's ethics in our speech or how we walk out our marriage relationships, the roles of husbands and wives, how we relate to civil authorities. These are all pressing questions right now in our day and age. How are we going to think about these things? How are we going to live them out? The two go hand in hand. Uh, what we see again and again in Scripture is that biblical living flows from our thought world, our convictions. Well, as we come to our text today in Hebrews 10, uh, we see that the author is summing up some very powerful thoughts and argument about who Christ is. And he's preparing them to answer this question. How then, as Christians in the first century, should we live? Now, this epistle is thought by many to be a sermon, an appeal to these early Christians to endure to not lose heart, to hold on to what they believe, believers facing persecution, that they might not drift away, that they might not drift from Christ, that they might not lose sight of the great salvation that they have in Christ. He's particularly concerned that some of the recipients of this sermon are settling in to kind of a subpar way of Christian living, something that we are all vulnerable to. He's concerned that for some, God seems distant to them. Maybe it's been some time for some of his recipients since they knew a consistent closeness in their fellowship with God. Well, maybe some of you friends are here today and and you feel that way. You feel distant from God and you're asking, is this all there is? Is this how I should live with a sense of distance from God? I think he's also concerned, it comes out in this sermon, that some are, are very aware of their sin, past failures, current struggles with sin, and it seems hard for them to figure out how they should draw near to God in light of their sin. Easier to maybe remain at a distance. You ever felt that way? You ever thought like that? Is this how I should live? He's concerned also that some of them are living a very subjective Christianity, riding a kind of roller coaster of ups and downs, emotions and fears and experiences are their foundation, their means of assurance. Maybe you've been like that. Maybe you're like that this morning and you're saying, is this how I should live? Lastly, I think he's concerned for those who are cutting themselves off from fellowship with other believers. We're going to see that in today's text. Maybe you're here this morning and you're somewhat of a loner Christian. Uh, Relationships with others seem unnecessary or maybe just not desirable for you. Too much work, too hard, too disillusioning. You're unmotivated to really enter into the lives of those around you, to draw them out, to draw them into relationship. Maybe even Sunday, this gathering seems optional to you, something that you could maybe give or take on a given Sunday, but you're not sure. So you're asking, is this then how I should think? Is this how I should live? I think God wants to have a word with all of us today. God wants to have a word with us. Hebrews 10 shows us how the author addressed these concerns. Ultimately, it shows us how God thinks through these concerns, how God cares for his children when they face these kinds of struggles in their thoughts or in their living. He not only wanted to care for those first century Christians, but we know that he wants to care for all his children in all ages. He wants to care for us today through this passage. Christians. Here's what we find in verses 19 through 21. Uh, We're going to see today, we we encounter in these first verses, the foundations for Christian living. In verses 19 through 21, and that's followed by three exhortations. Maybe three exhortations that you've, you've heard before. Three exhortations regarding our Christian living. How then should we live? The author to the Hebrews makes it very clear, and he gives three appeals for us individually, but also three appeals for us corporately. How we should live together as a local church. We have these individual relationships with God, but God intends for every Christian to think corporately as well. 
So let's begin to dive in. Let's first explore the foundation of our Christian living. What is the foundation that determines how we should then live? This passion passage begins with a key word in verse 19, therefore. Uh, you may have heard, maybe you've heard it many times, that when we see the word therefore in the Bible, that uh, we should ask, what is the therefore Therefore, okay, kind of one of those cheesy questions that, that uh, Christians are taught to ask, but questions that help us study our Bibles more carefully. Um, this word, therefore, is designed to function kind of like a, a double click. You, you click on this word and up comes the previous argument that we're to enter into and make sure that we understand um, that we that we treat it faithfully before we dive into its implications. So if we were to double click on that word, um, it would, it would show us that, that the author of Hebrews has been in kind of a sustained logic, a sustained argument from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way up through 10, verse 18. It's a rich section of this letter with its difficulties that, uh, that readers have to work through. But through it all, he is exploring and he's explaining the significance of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Peter O'Brien calls this middle part of Hebrews chapters 5 through 10 the great central exposition of the high priesthood of Christ. And maybe you're like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and if so, I hope to make it a little clearer for you today. We won't exhaust it all, but I hope to give you some handles as we work into this particular text. Um, in the chapters leading up to ours, the writer to the Hebrews has taken his readers into what he calls the Holy Places That would be a term familiar to Old Testament Israelites. For Old Testament Israel, they, they understood this language to refer to the tent, the critical place in the life of God's people where sacrifices were brought, the sacrifices of animals, that blood might be shed in order to deal with their great problem, their sin before a holy God. See, ever since uh, chapter 3 of Genesis onward, uh, we read about the great problem of humanity that occurred in the garden when sin entered into the world. And people have needed a way to relate as sinners before a holy God. People have needed a way to be able to draw near because given their sinfulness, we're not worthy. Given our sinfulness, we have no right to draw near to a holy God. It's the great dilemma. And yet in the mercy of God, he called out Israel to be his own. He set his love upon this people and he said, I'm going to make a way for you to be able to draw near. And so he instructed them to build a tent, a tabernacle where sacrifices could be offered to appease his righteous anger towards their sins. This structure, you may know, included an outer court where the sacrifices were brought and the, the, the priest led them in the sacrifices. But it also included an inner court, something called the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctuary where the priest could enter but only one day a year on a day called the Day of Atonement. And he went in with fear and trepidation because he was entering into the most holy place. He never casually entered. He entered by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and birds that were slain. But see, there was a problem. There was a problem inherent in this system. And that, that is what our author is getting to. That is what this pastor is getting to. That all those sacrifices offered day in, day out, inherent in them was a weakness that they could not atone for sins. They could not do away with the problem of guilt. They could not do away with our great dilemma. This transportable tent was eventually replaced by the temple in Jerusalem, a sacred place to God's people. What happened there was of greatest theological and relational significance to Israel. The temple and its sacrifices made it possible for God's people to draw near, albeit through a priest. Now here we arrive in verse 19. And the author of, of Hebrews is now declaring something radical. Did you catch what he said? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... How can this be? How can he be using this kind of language? Therefore, brothers, we have confidence. He's declaring that these Christians, each and every one of them, not one priest, not once a year, 
But all Christians, every one of them, have something called access. Access to God. Confident access to enter into the presence of the living, holy God. To those who knew their Old Testament, this would have been absolutely stunning language. Really an audacious claim. I can go in there? How is it that they had have access into what was formerly unapproachable for them? What possible sacrifice could enable them to draw near? Certainly it couldn't just be your normal priest, your normal sacrifices. That's been happening for hundreds of years. They know better than that. Well, this audacious claim is legitimate. Uh, The means of their access has indeed changed, and it's changed profoundly. And that's what he explains in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Um, I know this is some deep stuff, but hang with me here as... um, for chapters, our pastor's been making clear how the sacrifice of Jesus is so radically different. Those Old Testament sacrifices, they were like a big arrow pointing forward to this sacrifice, to this one who was to come. Look back at chapter 10, verse 11. I just want to show you some of the connections and some of the contrasts between Old Testament priests and New Testament situation. Chapter 10, verse 11, he writes, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Daily sacrifices offered daily because they didn't ultimately and decisively deal with the problem, the problem of sin before a holy God. But listen to how different Jesus' sacrifices. Listen and be amazed. Look at chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But when Christ... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Repeated sacrifices have now given way to a single sacrifice. Did you catch that? Okay. The priests who stood daily, one after another, for hundreds of years, they've now been exchanged for the one priest who no longer stands, but he sits down. He sits down at the right hand of God, where none of these priests would dare sit. He sits down. Why? Because his work is done. His work of sacrifice is done. Here are the contrast. Their sacrifices in verse 11 of chapter 10 can never take away sins. And yet his single sacrifice has perfected all time, for all time, those who are being sanctified. In other words, in other words, friends, this is what we have to celebrate this morning. This is what we have to cherish. All who look to Christ, all who come to God through Christ, have experienced a priestly sacrifice that is once and for all effective. Once and for all. It finally deals with our problem. Our deep problem of sin before a holy God. All those animals, all that blood that was shed, it all pointed to one sacrifice to come. And what this writer is celebrating is, it's come. It's happened. It has happened. So the author goes on to say, look in verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds No more. (laughs) And that is reason to celebrate. When God looks on us as believers, cleansed by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then He goes on to conclude, verse 18, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer, no longer any offering for sin. No more offerings for sin. No more offerings for sin. We don't have to wonder what sacrifice to bring to God to enable us to be able to draw near. The sacrifice is made. The sacrifice is complete. It is Jesus Christ. And that's why the author goes on in verse 20 of our text to call it, uh, to use this kind of language. It's a new and living way. Look at that. It's the new way. It's new in that it it didn't exist before Christ's death opened it up. 
It's a new way, a new way of access to God. It's new and that is qualitatively different than the old way, what the Old Testament priest could offer. It's not an animal. It's the spotless, sinless Son of God. It's the living way. Because our Savior died and now lives, we too enter into a living way of communion with God. A living access. Because the blood of Christ cleanses, it grants forgiveness. It gives life to those who are dead in their sins. The new and living way, he says, Jesus Christ has opened for us. This is stunning language. Language that I pray that I and you don't grow familiar with. There was, there was none of this kind of access in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. None. I think about when that priest entered. Uh, they say that he entered with a rope tied around his ankle with bells on it. Because <laughs> if he didn't come out, they were going to have to drag him out. Because they knew that they could not go into the Holy of Holies. If, if God slew this guy who came in as the mediator, they would pull him out by the rope. It was the holy, privileged, and yet dreaded place to go apart from God's blessing and God's access. No one entered it. But how did, how did this way get made? Well, he uses the language of the cross. He says, that is through his flesh. That's, that's shorthand for what happened on the cross. How do we have this entrance into the presence of a holy God? It's through his flesh. Uh, we have access given through the curtain. There was, there was a, a large curtain that was drawn between the inner court and the outer court. And all of God's people stayed on the outside, except for that priest who went in once a year. Now Christ has opened that curtain. And and we read about this in the Gospels, that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. When Christ paid for our sins on the cross, the Holy of Holies was now accessible to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Jesus Christ on the cross. We're not just told that we have access. We're told that we have confidence a confident access. And it's stunning. It's stunning when we think about the holiness of God. And yet it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Our confidence, it's not in ourselves. And it's not in the blood of animals. It's not in a ritual that we could perform. It's not in our performance this week. Our access is a confident access because it's in who we know, who has satisfied God. In 2008, um, George Bush was preparing to leave office, and I had um, a very good friend who had worked a few years uh, in the White House, and he was well-loved by the staff, and this friend invited me to do something that I just couldn't believe my ears when he, when he offered it. <laughs> I remember getting the call one day, and my friend said, hey, I might be able to get us onto Air Force One. Would you like to go? <laughs> so I thought... Are you kidding me? Um, I would love to go. And so he worked it out. And, and on a particular day in January, I traveled with a few friends to Andrews Air Force Base, a place I should never be allowed to get into. And we proceeded through security checkpoint after security checkpoint. Um, I had trepidation uh, in me as these guys with their machine guns were standing there and the gates would open. And uh, we just kept going. I kept thinking, we're not going to actually get in here, are we? And yet, because of my friend, because of his connections, we were able to get in. At one stop point after another until we boarded. And we walked up on the plane. Um, we were able to confidently walk up on this plane, uh, a place where we were able to walk around like we were supposed to be there, like we knew what we were doing. And um, the pilot, General Mark Tillman, was there. Now, if, if you studied some of your 9-11 history, this is the guy who flew the plane on 9-11. And so we were able to ask him questions all about the plane and uh, how Bush would conduct himself on the plane and what the president was doing on 9-11. Tell us about that. I, I heard stories that since then I've heard interviews with him that, that have confirmed it. But those days I heard stories for the first time. And I was just thinking, what in the world am I doing here? I mean, I have no right to be on this plane, hearing these stories, seeing these things, having this experience. How did I get here? It was all about about who brought me. 
It was all about my connection. And friends, because of the blood of Jesus, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have confidence to enter a place that left yourself you would in no way get into. You would in no way get past the security checkpoints of God's holiness dealing with your sin if it were not for the fact that God himself made a way. Something far more glorious than Air Force One has been opened up to us, and that is the very presence of the living God. Through Christ's death, we have access. Jesus' great salvation, it it not only includes his sacrificial death, but it also includes something else that we see there in verse 21. Look with me again in your Bibles. A brief phrase, but it is packed with meaning. He says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, So since we have confidence to enter, and since now we have a great priest over the house of God, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this phrase? Our our great priest over the house of God. This brief phrase speaks volumes to us as the reader. No other priest is ever described in such terms. Not all the priests of the Old Testament. None of them are described in this way. He reigns over the house of God. All the other priests... They dwelled within. They trembled before God. Jesus, he reigns over. This may remind you of language earlier in the letter. If you're familiar with chapter 4, verses 14 and following, he, he says that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So when Jesus died and was resurrected as, as the high priest, he now passed through the heavens and he now reigns over the house of God. What does Jesus do in his reign? Does he look down on his children, frustrated in displeasure or withdrawn in indifference? No. Hebrews 4 goes on to say, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus, in his humanity, in years of encountering temptations in this world, the fallenness of this world, yet never sinning, This qualified Jesus to be the perfect priest, the perfect mediator between sinners and a holy God. And so he reigns today, friends. He reigns over the house of God. He reigns triumphantly. And yet he walks out his priestly role sympathetically towards us. He looks upon us with compassion. He knows the struggles of life in this fallen world. He knows temptations. And he comes alongside his church to care compassionately, capably. Hebrews 8 tells us that he holds his priesthood permanently. He's not an average savior. He's not an average savior fulfilling average duties. No, he saves to the uttermost. So brothers and sisters, this morning we have confident access and we have ongoing assurance because of who Christ is, because of what he has done, and because of what he continues to do daily on our behalf as our high priest who has satisfied all the righteous rules, regulations, expectations of a holy God and he reigns forever interceding for us as his children. What does he reign over? He reigns over the house of God. I love this phrase because this is not just a local church. This is the entire church for all time. Every believer, whoever was, ever will be, he rules and reigns over the church. And yet there's something significant about a local church when it gathers. It's a reflection. It's an outpost of that heavenly church that is all going to be gathered. And we're going to think about that in just a second. And all this amazing stuff of Christ's death, his resurrection, his priestly reign, it is all intended to press us to this question, this very practical question. How then should we live? Schaefer's question is our question. How then should we live? And this is where our divinely inspired author takes the recipients of his sermon. He takes them into three exhortations. Three exhortations to Christian living. We've looked at the foundation. Let's look at the exhortations. First, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He won't let up on this idea of drawing near. He's hitting it again. He's saying, hey, in light of the fact that we have confidence 
to enter. Let's enter. Okay, so we have doors that have opened for us, access to a holy God through Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we are to assume that we take advantage of that relationally. We have it positionally, but do we take advantage of that? And that's what he wants to provoke these Christians to do. This father who sent his son to rescue us, he intends for us to draw near as his children. If we stand at a distance, clearly we're missing out on the main purpose of the gospel, friends. We were reconciled to have relationship with God. Okay. We need sound doctrine. We need right understanding of our salvation in Christ. But it is meant to drive us into a nearness in our relationship with God. Draw near to God. It's Jesus' great salvation, not our works, that enable us to live close to God. In other words, friends, the the great problem of human history uh, that Adam and Eve brought us into has been finally and fully dealt with. Do you remember that scene in the garden when Adam and Eve had sinned? What did they do next? They hid. They hid. It's just one of the most tragic pictures in all of Scripture. Here God comes to walk in the cool of the day. And where are they? They're hiding. Meant to have relationship. Meant to know their God. They're hiding. Why are they hiding? It's because they had run headlong their own way. They had chosen to try and be God, to rule over their lives, to to assume that they had wisdom to go their own way. They offended God's holiness. And so when he came to the place of fellowship, Adam and Eve hid. Then they were cast out of the garden, cast out of the presence and place of intimacy with their God. And friends, we've all done the same with our lives. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and to be honest, you'd say, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're not even sure exactly why you came this morning. And you say, I'm not sure that I understand what it means to be a Christian. Well, in part, it means coming to a place of recognizing, acknowledging that all of us have sought to go our own way. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we all have sought to be our own rulers, to be our own kings, to try and live under our will. And as a result, we have incurred guilt before a holy God. In our sin and our rebellion, we have incurred guilt. How is it that this writer of this sermon can say, draw near, draw near to God? It's because the sacrifice of Christ cleanses our guilt. It penetrates to the heart. You see his language there. It's not just an external cleansing. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is the stuff that Christ's death accomplishes. It it not only provides some sort of outward cleansing, no, it penetrates to our hearts, to our very consciences, so that we can know forgiveness of sins, so that we can have a conscience that is made right before a holy God. Reconciliation is purchased through this sacrifice. Fellowship with the holy God restored. Christians, let us draw near. Let us draw near. And my non-Christian friend, I know your problem with guilt. How do I know it? Because I've experienced it. And you will never be able to cleanse yourself. You won't. You will never be able to cleanse yourself. There's no works that you have done or could do that will deal with the problem of guilt before God. Um, Guilt before God, it's, it's the universal problem of all of humanity. And only God could deal with it finally and fully. And that's what he's done through Jesus Christ. You can draw near today, my non-Christian friend, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed that can make you in right standing before God, that can make you clean. Turn away from your own way and turn this way to Christ. Draw near his way. He says it is a way of faith. My Christian friends, we're to daily draw near. And I know of no better means of experiencing this nearness personally, my own experience, than through prayer. So let me ask you, are you taking advantage of the access you have in Christ? Are you drawing near to God in prayer? Are you enjoying communion with God in prayer? You know, if I preach this to myself, I feel both um, enticed to want to do that, and I feel guilt for how I have 
failed so many times to take advantage of the gift that prayer and relationship with God is. Um, But I love the encouragement that we get from passages like this. Let us draw near. Let us draw near to the living God. Second exhortation he gives us. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I love how this follows the drawing near exhortation. Living near to God in fellowship. We, in order to do that and to experience the benefits of all that we have in Christ, there are things that we have to hold fast to. Objective truths that we need to hold dear, that we need to not loosen our grip on. We do not let go as Christians of that which is true. We don't. We do not lean on the sinking sand of our circumstances. We hold fast to something objective, something unchanging, the unchanging realities of truths that are ours in Christ. The confession of our hope, friends, it's found in this book. Okay, And so when you hold this book, you hold amazing promises. Amazing promises that if you're in Christ, every one of these promises is yes and amen for you. And so we are to hold fast to it. We are to get to know these promises. We're to learn how to handle this word rightly. To get it into our hearts and minds. I love that you're memorizing scripture. Scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's a life transforming scripture. The gospel is, is all through it. And it shows and reminds us that we stand rightly before God. Not on the basis of our performance. But on the basis of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great truth. What a truth that will fill you with confidence to draw near. That's what we have an exhortation to in this passage. Draw near. Hold fast to a confession. A confession of hope. The confession of hope is what we have in Christ. In this book. The promises of God, friends, if we believe them, if we see them for what they are, they really are staggering. When was the last time you were staggered by what you read in Scripture? I would encourage you, ask God to stagger you afresh by the promises that are yours in Christ. They're promises we sang about this morning. They're the promises that sustain us as Christians through trials. And he who promised is faithful, this passage says. His promises give us something we desperately need. Hope. Hope. Hope that transcends all of our earthly troubles. You're going through trouble in this season? Uh, We know from our prayer requests this morning that that different ones of you are going through trouble. I I bet if we surveyed every person in this room, you would be able to articulate some way in which you're walking through trouble. We live in a fallen world. And yet, yet, there's this word, hope, 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 hope that transcends. Jesus' great salvation enables us to hold fast to a real hope in his promises. So we draw near by faith. We hold fast to the confession of our hope. I want to read a quote uh, to you that um, is in this book, Why We're Not Emergent, by two guys who should be. <laughs> Kevin DeYoung and Ted Kluck, um, they're, they're very winsome writers. Um, I, I'd encourage you to, to read their material. But he says about this thing called doctrine, this thing called our confession. Doctrine was to die for because it was the heartbeat of the apostles saving message about historical facts. And read that again. Doctrine was to die for because it was the heartbeat of Paul's saving message about saving historical facts. J. Gresham Machen writes, but if any one fact is clear on the basis of this evidence, it's, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message, a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, not upon a mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. As soon as you say Jesus died and rose again for your sins, according to the scriptures, you have doctrine. You have a message about what happened in history and what it means. That's theology. There is no gospel without it. And Machen also says, indifferentism about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. If we are indifferent about doctrine, it makes no heroes of the faith. 
So what is going to make us strong and stable in our faith? It's not us. It's not our emotions. It is the truth of who Jesus is, of what he's done, and the difference that makes for our lives. And so we draw near and we hold fast. And lastly, the third exhortation, let us consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works. I love this exhortation. (laughs) I love this exhortation. Uh, With this third appeal, our pastor, the writer of Hebrews, passes from this vertical relationship with God and shows its connection to the horizontal relationships. We, we are called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to love our neighbor as ourself. Obedience to God involves relationship with him and one another. And so we find Jesus' great salvation opens up our hearts to care for his church, to love the people that he died to save. And it's not complicated language, friends. He is just simply giving us a call to stir up our friends to love and good works to stir up our brothers and sisters in the local church to love and good works. He's in essence saying, I want you to give some serious, prayerful consideration of the people around you. What do they need? How do they need encouragement? How can you stir them up? Stir them up with encouragement. Stir them up with scriptures. Stir them up by praying together. If you were just to pause and and to think about your church, Think about specific lives, people you you intersect with in this church. Where do they need encouragement? Where would you carry a concern for the spiritual well-being of those around you? Who needs encouragement? Who needs a loving appeal? Who maybe needs a loving warning? The author to the Hebrews knows how much we need endurance for the Christian life. That is one of the main themes. Endurance. Endure. Endure till the end. And I'll tell you, given how strong the, the fight is, how, how strong the battle is against our faith, what a great enemy we have in the devil and in our indwelling sin, we need to stick together. There is no such thing in the scriptures as a loner Christian. When you are saved, you are added. And you are added to his bride for sure, but that's to be expressed somewhere in a local church. And that's what you see in the scriptures again and again and again. And so we are to be added to a local church that can be expressed in a powerful way in membership. If you're not a member of this church, I encourage you to be praying about it. Be talking to Larry about it. Um, And I'd love it if Larry gets 10 emails this week of people who want to talk about membership. That would be great. Because what that is, it's an expression of obedience to this command that we are going to be in it with other believers. We're going to stick together. So he calls on believers to stir up one another. And the result of encouraging efforts begins to be evident in the lives of others, doesn't it? He, he puts it in positive terms. We are to stir up others to love and good works. These aren't two distinct categories. They, they express, one expresses the other. When we have love, it's expressed in good works. When we express good works, it's, it's, a, it's an expression of love built in. And so as Christians, love and good works are they're the natural consequence of being in right relationship with God. You, when you draw near to God, when you have confession of hope, well, you want to live that out in life with other Christians. We can't simply assume that love and good works are happening in our lives. If, they, if we could just assume it, we wouldn't need exhortations. But as Christians, we need exhortations. We need to be reminded. We need, I need, to be stirred up. I mean, and I just want to tell you, this weekend, I've been stirred up. <laughs> and I knew I would be when I came here. I'm going to be stirred up by this church. I know it. Uh, to be with your pastor, Larry, to be with his wife, Marilyn, is to be stirred up, to be encouraged towards the Lord. And I'm so grateful. To be with the leadership team of your church is to be stirred up. To be greeted as I walk in on Sunday mornings is to be stirred up. To be with all the young couples yesterday, I I can call them young because I'm getting old. But uh, to be with them is to be stirred up by their hunger for God's word, their desire to learn. I've had time on my last two visits here with Larry and Nora and Larry and Stephanie. And to have a meal with them is to be stirred up. This afternoon, I'm going to get to hang with Brandon and Annie over a meal. I know that I'm going to be stirred up by their lives, their love for Christ. This kind of encouragement that really is life transforming, it's really only possible in a sustained way because of the local church. 
And so I think what we have here is, is an appeal to hold in high regard what God has given us in the local church. As believers, we are to be committed together. That's why you work hard at relationships. Um, no relationships just just happens. You sow and you sow and you sow. You go up and you greet and you go through the awkwardness. Uh, you, you greet. You press in. You get to know. You ask questions. They ask questions of you. You develop a relationship. This is why we don't isolate ourselves. This is why we have care groups. So we can get to know one another all the more. All the more. And so he positively calls us to love and good works. And then he puts it, he warns us about the negative. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. This is a very sobering phrase. Do not neglect to meet together. And then he adds this, as some are in the habit of doing, as is the habit of some. There are many things that can tempt us um, from, from sticking together in relationship with one another. And in this letter, he warns about some of those themes. He warns about the theme of laziness. He says, you guys are growing sluggish. Some of you are getting sluggish. You, some of you should be teachers. And I, I have to remind you of the elementary things of God's word. I read that and I, <laughs> that is like a spur for me. I'm just like, grow, 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 study, study, study. Because, man, I, I don't want to have to hear that kind of word come in my way. <laughs> and so, so he wants to provoke them. He wants to call them out if they've been lazy and say, there's something much better. There's something much better. Some can, can lose uh, desire to attend because of discouragement. You know, and he's addressing that in this letter. You've gone through hard times, and yet he has this great exhortation. Yet you've not resisted your sin to the point of shedding blood. So stay in it. Stay in it. We make excuses so easily for ourselves to withdraw. He's not making excuses. He's saying this thing called church, this is a good thing when believers get together. He's aware of persecution. And probably some of these believers have faced it and some are going to face it in the days to come. This is an appeal today that is relevant to our brothers and sisters around the world. Places like Kenya, places like Ethiopia, places like Iraq. Don't give up meeting together. Certainly, we should obey this call. Whatever the difficulty or danger that could tempt you on a given day to not come, to stay at home, uh, it's dangerous. Don't be deceived. He says it's the habit of some. And so, friends, when we deem it best to pull back from fellowship in the local church, to deem Sunday morning optional, uh, this verse, it stands as a witness against us. It stands as a witness against us that we are not to be in disobedience. So let me ask it positively. What's going to sustain us? What's going to keep us coming back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? You know, some Sundays are great. We go home and we're that was just the sweetest of Sundays. I mean, that was a great message. That was a great time of worship. Wasn't that wonderful? Some Sundays aren't like that, you know? And, and yet, there's something good and right about all the above experiences. Um, some Sundays just seem like they're off the charts. Many Sundays, you're sitting under the faithful preaching of God's Word. You're together with other Christians, whether you feel like it or not. <laughs> and God's doing a work. God is doing a work. And so we honor his word and we honor what God intends to do. You know what God loves to do when Christians get together? If you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he loves to build up. He loves to edify. And that's what he's calling us to experience here. So the life of the church, it's not limited to a Sunday meeting. I'm not trying to say the only application is Sunday morning. But there is no more significant aspect of our lives together as a local church than when we gather and we'll do what we're doing today. Sunday mornings. Why can I say that? Think about what you receive on Sunday mornings that's unique to Sunday mornings. You hear the word of God read and preached. You gather together with the entire church to declare your dependence and trust in God through prayer. You sing the truths of God's word in response to his grace. You participate at different times in the sacraments. You edify one another as you see the gifts of the spirit on display. As we experienced this morning in so many ways. You get to contribute to the ministry of the church financially. Um, this is the pattern we see throughout Scripture. This is the pattern we see in Acts 2. The first church, what does it say about them? They devoted themselves. Are you devoted? They devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Very simply, friends, that's what we do. Sunday after Sunday, we devote ourselves to this book 
We devote ourselves to fellowship and singing and prayer, breaking of bread, fellowship together. Friends, we have a reason to keep meeting. (laughs) We have a reason to keep meeting. And I want to encourage you, don't neglect the privilege that Sundays are. I really do hate the lies of the enemy that tempt believers to stay home on Sundays. I hate those lies. Um, A choice to stay home can too easily become a pattern. And we've seen it happen to friends, haven't we? Uh, isn't Isn't it just awful when you see a friend fall off from faithful attendance in the church? Because you know that it's just not a neutral place to hang out. They put themselves in harm's way when they do that. And so that's why God calls us to be on a rescue mission with Christians who do that. I want to be a Christian who comes to church every Sunday, whether I feel like it or not. (laughs) I want to be a Christian who comes to church, even if I'm stumbling through the front doors, overwhelmed by the circumstances of the week. I want to be a Christian who shows up again and again and again, not because I necessarily feel like it, but because it's right, because it's good, because it's how and where God meets us again and again and again with his means of grace, which are profound and powerful, if albeit on the face of it, very straightforward and ordinary. So let's keep meeting. Let's keep encouraging until he returns. Friends, I think this could all be summed up in this statement. Jesus' salvation, it empowers and invites faithful Christian living. I think that's what this passage teaches us, that Jesus' salvation empowers and it invites us into faithful Christian living. That's really what we see in this text. Jesus' salvation in the cross and in his priestly reign over the house of God, it makes possible Christian living. And it invites us and inspires us to enter into it, to obey these exhortations in our living. By his grace, through Christ's saving work, we draw near, friends, we hold fast, we stir others up, we draw near by faith, we hold fast in hope, we stir up one another in love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this glorious passage, which reminds us of the amazing sacrifice of your Son, who has become our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we don't just believe in doctrine, but we believe in doctrine that transforms our lives. It shapes how we think and then transforms how we live. And so, Father, I I pray that you would be glorified as we take this passage And we seek to apply it faithfully as individuals and as a local church. Father, I pray for Grace Church that no one here would neglect the privilege of meeting together, but that you would, through the stirring up of encouragement, cause them to be a people that draw near to you personally and corporately, that hold fast to what they believe in your word, and that they would stir up one another in the grace of encouragement. And we thank you. In Jesus, our great Savior and great high priest's name. Amen.